You're listening to the Core Stories podcast. These are stories about lives that intersect with Jesus. I'm Emily, the communications director at Otter Creek Church. I went downtown to visit Bethany and Matthew Williams at their office for Exile International so they could tell me the story of exile and their personal journeys of finding hope and joy. My name is Bethany Williams. And Matthew Williams with Exile International. So I came to Nashville actually more than 20 years ago um, for graduate school. So my master's is in clinical social work and my doctorate is in counseling psych. But I originally moved to Nashville for my master's in social work. um, And I've seen it grow in beautiful ways because I've been here for a while. And came to Otter Creek actually... um, had been through a really difficult time in my life and was single again after being married for 10 years and going through a pretty traumatic divorce and um, didn't really want to go to church, honestly, because I'd been burnt out. We were both leaders in the church, fell really hard from pedestals. And if I ever went to church, I was on the back row because I did not want to be involved in church. I went to a couple different churches to check out singles ministries and landed at Otter Creek, I think, mainly because I felt uh, welcomed there, I think, maybe. Um, That was before I even started exile. Um, And then in 2008, I went to Congo for the first time. I'd been to Africa two or three times, I think, in the past, and went to Congo for the first time in 2008. And it totally broke me. Um, I, again, had been through my own journey through trauma and um, was was kind of recovering from that, but still broken and um, going through he- the healing process. But I went over with an organization to lead a trauma care workshop for ladies who had been uh, traumatized because of the wars in Congo and they were living in displacement camps. But what I saw there was just deep brokenness and what I felt like was hopelessness at the time. Um, Met children who were deeply wounded. They'd seen their parents die, um, met child soldiers for the first time. They had been forced to kill and they were telling me stories and they were living in an orphanage because they'd escaped and there was nowhere else for them to go. And they'd been orphaned because of the war. Um, And so came back from that trip and I think recently I've started describing it like um, I like God put a fire in my belly and I had to do something. <laughs> so like not doing something wasn't an option. I just had to figure out how to do something. And I didn't really even know necessarily what that something was. I was in full-time private practice at the time, counseling practice. And yeah, the next year or two was finding out how to start a nonprofit, meeting with those who were founders and presidents of organizations, what did you do well? What did you do wrong? How did you learn from that? What do I need to be doing? And started to take trips back and forth to do research and also start programs overseas with a focus of um, holistic trauma care for children who'd been orphaned by war and also rescued child soldiers. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, y'all just heard her story. So I met this gal who was passionate about Christ and passionate about changing the world, especially the lives of these children. 
And I mean, can you blame me for ending up in Nashville, Tennessee? Um, but I think my story actually started before that in that I had recently finished my degree in psychology, my undergraduate degree in psychology. Um, I spent a year um, transitioning a youth ministry into someone else's uh, care. And during that year, um, before starting my master's, I had seen a documentary about child soldiers. I hadn't yet chosen the population I was going to focus on and during my graduate degree, but it was in seeing that documentary in the next summer, having an opportunity to volunteer in northern Uganda in displacement camps with children who had been affected by the LRA, the affecting rebel army in that area, that it was like that God light bulb went off for me. Um, it was, this is the population I finally knew that I would work with came back to the States, uh, began or continued. I'd actually already started at that point. Um, I finished my degree in biblical counseling um, with a focus in trauma, with the goal of working with this population of war-affected children and sexually trafficked children as well. So it was in the time, um, in the year after that, I was working in a psych hospital, learning about trauma treatment, practically not just from the books anymore. Um, it was during that time getting experience that I actually connected with an old friend who turned out to be Bethany's best friend. Uh, we ran into each other at a missions conference in Texas. Um, she just kind of connected the dots and was like, wow, you know, I, I've got to tell you about this organization that a friend of mine started three years ago. And what, yeah, she told me all about it. I went to the website, uh, read the mission statement. It was like the mission statement for my life was there on that website. Um, so she connected Bethany and I, um, we, we met up uh, for a whopping hour in, <laughs> in Nashville. I drove to Nashville just to, to meet and talk about the potential of, uh, whatever. I didn't even know what it was. It could have been volunteering. It could have been anything. I was just looking for an organization doing exactly this. And, um, Beth, Beth's response was, we've been looking for a male trauma therapist. So I said, pick me, please. And, uh, I walked away from that conversation going, I think she just asked me if I would go with them to Uganda and Congo in six weeks. There's no way I heard that right. I think I'm just way too hopeful. Um, but the next day I got a text message that said, have you been praying about it? And honestly, I hadn't been. So I prayed about it and it didn't take too long to figure out, yeah, I'm in, let's do this. So that first trip, uh, you know, six weeks later, I left. Um, I, so the first time Beth and I even really got to hang out or be around each other for anything other than that one hour coffee that time. Um, we got to know each other in Congo, mm -hmm. uh, spending several weeks there. I got to visit all of the programs. Um, at that time, there were only several, only a few um, in Uganda and Congo. I got to visit them, learn more about them, really fell in love with the programs. And before uh, I came back to the States, I was, I don't know if I looked at you or if you had left and you were at another program, we were on the phone, I don't remember, but I remember telling you, you have to hire me. And you were like, great. But I can't pay. Yeah, and it wasn't even a it wasn't even a hiring. It was yeah. a natural. I didn't have that many people helping me and needed a lot of help. And Matthew was like, "Let me help you." Yeah, and um, really at those early stages, it it wasn't like the romance thing wasn't going on. It was just and and again, I'd been married before and had exed out remarriage. Period. I didn't want to do that again. And um, 
So part of the working together wasn't I hired Matthew. It was just a natural, let's do this thing. Let's help these kids. Well, you, um, you had shared several things that were needs. Yeah. And so I just said, hey, let me take those. Let me do those. So it really mm-hmm. wasn't hiring, I guess, in the sense of because you weren't. You had because said I you wasn't paying. Because, yeah. yeah. And the cool thing is Matthew said, that's okay. God will provide. So he literally moved to Nashville from Texas, raised his own support, did his own thing, left his community because he loved these kids so much. And what's interesting is people often think, oh, Matthew, you know, started working with Exile and tagged along on this vision, but Matthew had gone to Uganda before I had gone to Uganda, was doing trauma work in, um, where did you go? Southeast Asia, several countries. Worked at a children's home in Bali. Um, So all of this was going on way before he met me, Um, who's doing trauma care with kids. So we, the story about us, then we started, I guess six weeks in, we we said we're not dating at all for six weeks. There was definitely sparks. six weeks? I mean six months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then we got married after six weeks. Yeah. No, just kidding. That did not happen. So we met in September and you finally officially went on a date with me the following May. We were able to keep the brakes on that. I mean, come on. You love Jesus. Uh, You're on the exact same mission and you're beautiful. So, I mean, come on, folks that are listening right now. uh, uh, Duh. <laughs> I don't know anything else to say. It was a no-brainer. It was just how how long can I wait before potentially screwing up this opportunity to work for my dream organization? So it was really like once we acknowledged it, I had to decide, okay, we both said, hey, this mission comes first. Totally, so yeah. So we probably can't date. Mm-hmm. And if we ever did, we would have to figure out like when, talk to wise counsel and decide at some point later. Uh, so yeah, anyways, that came later and we just said, hey, this is either going to be a really good decision or really bad. Really bad one. Really yeah. an awful, like, I think someone told us this was either going to be a train wreck or the most beautiful story ever. Hey, so. high five. We got the most beautiful story ever. <laughs> With some bumps in, in the road. Yes. Yeah. So we dated cautiously for two years and it honestly wasn't easy. We had to learn how to run an organization together and we're both very passionate and opinionated and how do we learn to listen instead of tell the other person what we really think. Hey, and but before we got married, we had already learned to balance budgets far larger so than true. our home budget. Yeah. Would ever be. Far larger. Far larger. Yeah. Yeah. So I got connected with Otter Creek after moving to Nashville. A lot of my friends were at uh, another church and I was going there with them. I'd been visiting Nashville for years. I had a lot of friends here already. So it was a really great transition that I already had um, a a bit of community here. Um, But then after Beth and I started dating and then that was getting serious, you know, you go through that whole, okay, whose church are we going to end up at? And so we were kind of doing double duty. You know, we'd go to both churches on Sunday and uh, it was really crazy how much more connected I was getting to Otter Creek so fast. Like this uh, other church I'd gone to, a fantastic church. Um, and when I go to church, I want to be plugged in and connected and involved. I want to volunteer. And um, it was really interesting because I kept asking for opportunities to volunteer. I'd go to the volunteer desk and it would be a volunteer running the desk saying, I don't even know what to tell you because I just... Not at Otter Creek, by the no, way. No, not at Otter yeah. Creek. That's why I'm no name, awesome church, but their volunteer desk did not function very well. And I was like, man, it's impossible to um, plug in. Here's a, not to toot anyone's horn here, but seminary grad with some decent experience offering to 
volunteer and I can't even get plugged in. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm having lunch with Josh Graves and Patrick and so many other people. And it was just seemed natural. It just kept happening. And I was plugged in at Otter Creek and it was a real natural decision. And as I segued over and uh, fell in love with um, our family there. Mm-hmm. And Otter Creek has been, <clears throat> they were our first church partner. So I met with Steve Sherman in the very beginning. Um, at that point, my passion was probably a lot bigger than even my wisdom. But um, we needed to do a lot of work and help a lot of kids, and we just didn't have money to do it. And so uh, Steve was kind, and then he listened to me and, and really um, hung on to the vision and and was he was able to dream with us really and so uh, Otter Creek was our, our first church support so the first thing that comes to mind in terms of the time that I felt like maybe I couldn't see the hand of God necessarily in a situation was um, when there was a rebel army that actually overtook um, the town where our residential center is. It's and called the Peace Live Center. Do you mind if I throw this out there? Because sometimes people think Africa, oh, it's all rural jungle. No, this is a city of a million people that was overthrown by M23. I mean, it's a rebel group. They had yeah. been causing havoc and displaced millions. Um, in the more rural areas, but we never dreamed they would be able to take over Goma, um, but they did. So, yeah. So, um, I don't think anybody dreamed that they would be able to overtake the city. And we were actually Matthew and I were in Washington D.C. at the time, delivering. And this is a totally different story, but we were able to deliver letters to the White House from our kids who wrote letters to the president describing what it was like for them to be in captivity and um, and what their lives were like because of war. And so in the middle of all of this, we're getting text messages from our team overseas saying the rebels overtook the city. And not only that, but they're in a battle with the government over the Peace Live Center. There's literally two strategic hills that are adjacent to this residential care facility, and they're lobbing mortars back and forth, and there's gunfire going back and forth uh, right beside this care program. And we're doing everything we can to contact our contacts at the UN, and even through roundabout ways, black ops uh, crew that potentially worked in the area and we just weren't able to, we weren't able to do anything. We Mm -hmm. could not fix the problem. Yeah. And so just to give you context, there are around 115 kids that just in this particular residential center, the Peace Live Center, um, live there. And so they were literally putting the young kids, the orphan kids on the ground and putting mattresses on top of them. Um, and like it even upsets me so much to talk about it, but and putting mattresses on top of them just in case the bombs came into the center. Um, and so that was probably the most helpless I've ever felt in my life. Um, and I was, we were literally on the streets of DC and I was a <laughs> sobbing mess. And Matthew came around the corner and he was like, what is wrong? What happened? Who died? And I explained what was going on and, um, so I, I would call UN contacts and they would say, we're, we're leaving. We can't help you because we're actually evacuating. And because the largest UN peacekeeping force in the world is based there in Goma. Again, that's why we didn't think we never dreamed Goma could be taken over. So you also think, 
okay, I can at least call on them to help because we had nurtured this relationship in case this ever happened. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they weren't able to do anything. Yeah. And some of our our team, our staff were under their beds. And so they were texting us. We're seeing the rebels outside. Don't call me because if you call me, then they may hear the phone. Um, So literally all we had was prayer. And for, for, for two people who go into situations and they like do something and they get in there and they solve the problem, literally we had nothing to do except pray. And so we rallied the troops. Like we called churches to pray. We put it on social media, like people, you have to get on your knees to pray for these kids to survive. And so was it a day and a half, maybe of the fighting, maybe even two days, but so eventually it ended And what I was praying is angels around the center, just like, Lord, send your angels to protect the center so nothing happens. And and when it was all said and done, there were around 20 dead bodies around the center. But miraculously, no bombs came into the center, no bullets, like none of the kids were injured. Um, And what I didn't know is Joseph, who's the program coordinator of the center, was praying the exact same thing angels around the center. Lord, just put angels around the center. Um, So yeah, I just imagine like the angels coming around, just protecting the center in the middle of the bombs in the war. Um, But yeah, I think in that situation, what we couldn't see were the angels. What we couldn't see were the prayers of the saints going up to protect these kids. I would say we, we survived that time uh, through faith and really a faith that was strengthened and encouraged um, because as Beth said before we're go-getters and sometimes we can forget to ask God to accomplish it and think that it's up to us so I think that we won the children survived and that was huge and such a blessing we saw God's hand in that yet there was never an option to not survive it was never an option to to give up and go okay well this could happen again because the city was actually under siege for weeks mm-hmm. and there was it was still a time of uh, a time on our knees a time of prayer because you still never knew what was going to happen tomorrow um, was the fighting going to uh, pick up again or would we ever be able to um, get back there or would the programs be able to continue because they're important because they're transforming the lives of kids or are they going to be kicked out and pushed out you had no idea but there's never been a moment where we thought can we survive it it was always we're going to survive this. We're going to trust God in this. We are going to push forward and we're going to be faithful with what we have. And if that's only prayer, that's what we're going to do. If it's, you know, resources, we're going to do that. I mean, and it's not just us. It's also our team on the ground overseas who are the true heroes who are Mm -hmm. literally placing the mattresses over the kids who are risking their lives with these children Mm -hmm. doing everything they can. So for us, it was, Hey, how do we support you? How do we get you what you need? So you um, get to do what you need to do. Um, So I, I guess it was, uh, how do we survive? It was just never giving up, which was never an option anyways. I would say that situation we just discussed of M23 taking over the city was a beautiful example of God showing up and in a God-sized way that you could not doubt it was him. But when I think about uh, other other things, other examples, my mind goes to what we're seeing happen in children's lives. I think of Dillis and Judith and Dennis when we ask them the question of 
what would you want to share with the world? We oftentimes ask this because it's their voice was taken away from them. They, whenever you use your voice to say, I don't want you to do that to me. I don't want you to put this gun in my hand and force me to do this act of violence. When you, when a young girl uses her voice and her strength uh, to say, get off of me, I don't want this, yet the man overpowers her. That is stealing away their voice and their power. So one thing we want to do, and this is essential in trauma healing, is empowering is empowering traumatized individuals to regain their strength. And so when I, when we give them an opportunity to use their voice to, to share their story, uh, it's beautiful to see the things that come out. Unprompted, when you hear a young lady say, I would tell the man who abducted me, welcome back to our community so that we can forgive you. That's a God-sized thing that I struggle to, you know, forgive for something small and insignificant. So insignificant, I can't even think of what that is right now. Yet I hear this young lady who went through hell say, I would forgive. And I wish these rebels would lay down their guns and just come back to the community. Not so we can punish them, not so we can get revenge, but so they can be welcomed back and they can be healed too. Um, that is a beautiful example, and I, I can't. I could name so many names of children I've heard share similar stories. Um, but I also think about um, another God-sized thing. I think is Baraka's story. Wow! Yeah. I mean, Baraka is a young man in Exiles programs that was probably one of the most traumatized kids I've ever met. He had been abducted twice by two different rebel armies, first time at, I believe, 12 years old, um, and then again later at 15 years old. Um, he spent a week um, in a hole. I think uh, how he got from one rebel army to the other is that you know they had fought and they abducted and killed some, but he was one of the ones they took and um, forced to be a part of their rebel group. But part of his punishment um, or part of his abuse and trauma was being stuck in a hole without food for a week. It was just a hole in the ground, a cage basically. And so years of fighting, I, I, oh, I'm, I'm picturing, I remember him sharing. There's actually American Bible study um, um, did a documentary it, during which they filmed part of that at the center and uh, Baraka shared part of his story. And in that, um, he, he talks about the first time he killed and how he became a literal new person after that. He felt himself die. Mm -hmm. And then when he eventually escaped and eventually made it to Exile's care program, he was. He was the walking dead. And it took years for him to recover, as you can imagine. I mean, of course it takes years to recover from this hell that these kids have been through. But eventually he was redeemed and restored in a beautiful way. I mean, we can talk about how, but I just want to jump to what the result is. And so now Baraka... Um, I think about two years ago now, he graduated from the program, meaning he graduated from the counseling program, the trauma healing program, the leadership development program, but he also graduated from high school, obviously missing several years of school. He graduated a little bit later than some, um, you know, when you think of an 18 year old, he was a few years older than that. Um, but after being, um, after he 
graduated, he was able to be reintegrated into his community, which is one huge win because most communities, which is where part of where our name comes from, is that these children are exiled from their communities. If they are rescued or they do escape, no one wants them back because they are seen as murderer. So it's taking a lot of time and really hard work and well done work by our staff on the ground to develop great relationships with leaders on the ground to understand these kids are different. They're not a kid that was just rescued from a gang and then we're throwing them back in your lap. Now, these kids have been through hell, but they've also been through rehabilitation and they have things to offer your community. We actually have uh, communities that are wanting our kids now, which mm-hmm. is beautiful. Yeah. So he's reintegrated with his community. And so he doesn't just go back and do nothing and doesn't just participate. He goes back as a leader. So we are back um, in the country about six months after he had been reintegrated in his community. He comes uh, back down to Goma, the city we mentioned earlier, to visit and tell us about what's going on with him. He's so excited. And there's a little broken English and my horribly broken Swahili. And, and so he's at, he says, hey, can I get another Bible? I'm like, well, sure. But what happened to your Bible that you already had? I said, well, I gave it to a rebel. I'm going, wait a minute. Something's being lost in translation here bring over our country director and make sure that we're getting everything translated. And sure enough, Baraka is leading a Bible study with 15 active rebels. He is walking eight kilometers one direction twice a week to share the gospel, to share good news with rebels. And you think rebels, like, why don't they kill him? Well, they're a lot of them are probably, they were once children who were abducted too. Mm-hmm. And in Baraka, they see what they yearn for, what their commanders have told them are not possible for them. That no one will ever want you because really, they usually don't want you. Like I mentioned before, that you'll never have a future. And then also, you'll never escape because if you try to escape, we'll kill you. Many of the children on our program have seen others try to escape and be murdered uh, because of that attempt to escape. But in Baraka, they see... They see light. They see something so different. They see good news. He is the incarnation of good news to them. And he's leading this Bible study twice a week. And we're scratching our heads, literally, like I am right now, um, and wondering how in the world is this possible? Bracca, you know, actually, Beth, you looked at him and said, Bracca, you know this is dangerous. But he responds with this beautiful smile and just says, this is why God saved me, Mm -hmm. so that I could share the good news with them. And then he also said, you know, the reason why they're listening to me is because I was once a rebel. Like I was once in their shoes. And so they're, he, he's realizing that he has this space we could never enter into. And a lot of people even in Congo couldn't enter into, but because he knows what it's like to live their life, he knows what it's like to be able to receive grace and forgiveness and redemption. And he can speak to that. Um, So, yeah, his is a beautiful story. And I think that um, the fact that these kids are able to overcome and find forgiveness and find redemption, it's almost like they're looking the enemy in the face and saying, you know, that thing that you tried to do to me, well, this is even bigger than that. Like me being able to forgive these people and my life to be redeemed again is bigger than the torture that I went through. So I see God in that for sure. And I would say even more like the redemption and that God-sized part of Baraka's story is also not just that Bible study of 15 rebels, 
but actually Baraka and two other graduates have started a care program in that same community where 86 rescue child soldiers are coming five days a week to go through the trauma care program that they, they all three of those graduates went through and are now trained in. So they're leading these 86 rescue child soldiers through the very same program that changed their lives and now they're paying it forward. And I get excited to think about what God can do through the graduates of these programs, not through Exile, not through Exile's team, but through these children because our mission is that rescue child soldiers will become leaders for peace and they will transform communities. And that is exactly what's happening. They are replicating the programs in places that would be almost impossible for us to ever get to and most definitely never have the same influence they could have. And so they're replicating that program and they are seeing the fruit. And it's beautiful. And that, that to me is one of the many things that we see God doing. I think in the beginning, one thing that connected me to the kids on the ground so much is that I'd been through my own journey of trauma. So I knew what a flashback was. I knew what it felt like to have a flashback. I knew what a nightmare was because of trauma. Um, I also knew what it was like for people to give up on me in a period of, you know, after the divorce and, um, you know, a lot of really difficult things happened and I felt rejected and I felt alone and I just needed somebody to believe in me. And I knew that above anyone else, God believed in me. If no one else believed in me and if everyone saw me for what I had done or what my experience in life was that God saw something different. And so when I met these kids, I think that I think that's why I connected to them on such a deep, passionate um, level to the point that I was willing to give up my life, like literally, but then also just my comfort life, you know, back in America, because I wanted them to feel like we see you and someone believes in you and someone sees past what you were forced to do or what happened to you in life, um, or what, um, or what was forced upon you. And so I think there are a lot of parallels there. I often, um, I think about the number of children that we work with who've been orphaned. So there are two populations we work with, rescue child soldiers and then also children who've been orphaned by war. And when you've been orphaned, there's, there's a rejection there, there's a loss there, there's a hole there. And when those kids are able to step into a new identity, that's when we see the biggest change in them. So we never use the term rescue child soldier with the kids. Um, or orphaned children. So we call the rescue child soldiers um, young peacemakers. So they ref they ref literally refer to themselves as, I'm a young peacemaker, I'm a YPM. And then the orphan children, they refer to themselves as the hope children. So I'm a hope child. Um, and I think for me, that was so transformative for me to one, realize that my past pain could have purpose and then also to understand my new identity in Christ. And, uh, and we see that in the children as well, both of those things. When they understand that, we don't think they can just survive war. We actually believe and are seeing that they can become the next generation of peace leaders. So they understand and they realize my past pain wasn't just for me to survive it. My past pain really had a purpose so that I can help other children who survived war, so that I can be a peacemaker in my country and change the trajectory of war 
then there, there's a different kind of light that comes in when you realize that God can use your pain for purpose. Um, so that's what I've kind of seen in terms of the parallel. I mean, I've definitely been through my own traumas and loss as well. Um, my, my dad died uh, almost 10 years ago um, and very cancer that was caught really, really late. Um, you know, and that loss, um, I would say the, the loss of ab- soon after that, there were two, uh, two guys that were best friends. They lived together in Dallas um, that took me in. They, 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 I'd gotten to know them just through the coffee shop where I always studied, but they just started investing in my life, wanting to kind of fill that gap. And after several years of getting to know them, becoming crazy close to them, doing family dinners at their house all the time, um, and then uh, one of the guys' cancer had come back, and he died a very painful, horrific death. It was uh, slow and painful and so hard to watch. Um, and his best friend being there caring for him. Um, I think it was incredibly hard on him, obviously, as his best friend. He's watching die as well. I mean, they were both 60-year-old guys, never married. They were best friends. And um, unfortunately, after Don died, then about six months later, uh, Marion just he, he couldn't deal with it. He did, wasn't open with us. He didn't talk to us about. There were two. Me and my friend Brett were. I really feel like sons to him. We referred to them as our dads. It's funny. Our, our dads, which would totally confuse people. You know, it's like, hey, my two dads. You know, I'm going over to hang out with them. Um, but he committed suicide, and that was obviously really hard to get through. Um, um, so yeah, I've definitely been through my own trauma as well, or my own difficulties, but trauma is not a situation. It's more of your response to a situation. And really the definition of trauma is in, is individual to each person's reaction to a trauma of a traumatic incidents. And I think having had my own loss helps me be a bit more open to or aware of the pain of trauma Um, and probably enables me to be even more empathetic. I hope I would be compassionate. I hope anyone would be compassionate towards um, children who have been through hell and are trying to put their life back together. I would say that probably does help me. Uh, For me, I think the promise of God that I hold on to that stands out to me is the fact that he's trustworthy because we've been in so many situations, both personally and then also just with the kids that we work with in, in our team overseas, that you think, you know, how can this end up good? How can there be any good in this whatsoever? And his promise is that he's trustworthy. So even if you don't understand, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, Or you even think, how are we actually going to feed this many kids? (laughs) Or what are, how, you know, you've got kids who are praying about, even this past couple weeks, they were praying, please, Lord, send a university sponsor. I've come so far. I just want to go to university. And so this week we were praying and we were like, guys, we don't think you're going to get to go. Because we don't have a sponsor and we don't know what to tell you. And that's and that was heartbreaking. really hard to share with our staff. And they're like, you know, these kids are crazy excited. They've been looking forward to this. They fulfilled all the requirements. I'm just going, oh. Yeah. And so this past weekend, we had someone who said, I'm going to sponsor 
that we have all we have we have 30 right now going to school we had seven that were on the waiting list and university starts this month and we had someone last weekend that says I'll sponsor the rest it's remarkable so yeah he just proves himself trustworthy and even in the in the moment you just think this makes no sense at all and how can any and, and there's so much pain involved um, but he says just trust me I'm trustworthy I'd say the promise that I um I hang on to the most, so it gets me through the day the most. Um, I learned from Brennan Manning, um, and really the title of his book summarizes it all as the furious longing of God. And really what he's talking about there is the unceasing, unbreakable, you can't stop him, love for you. I went through, as many of us have, my own dark night of the soul. I was actually at seminary when I was, but on my knees, praying that God would give me the want to want to want to love him. I didn't even want to want to. And so I had to like, I give me the want to want to want to love you. And I, I had gotten it all mixed up. I thought that I had to stir up this thing inside of me. And I stumble across this book on a friend's bookshelf in California where I'm out there on vacation for a week and was reading that on the beach, just weeping because through that and, and learned as he brought out the scriptures that address this specifically, God's furious longing for me, it was in understanding how much God loved me that my heart's own natural response was to begin to love God. And I had it all wrong. I thought I had to come up with this. It's like, hey, you're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, which is the only tattoo I have on my body, on my wrist. It is actually the word ahav. It's that will to love. Um, so I had already made this decision that I was going to love God with all I've got, but I was trying to do it on my own. But it was it's in response to, it's in understanding that God loves me. And I can't break that. I can't stop that. I can't go, nope, stop doing it. doesn't matter. He loves me. And if I could share that with anyone, um, that's what I want to share. I want everyone to know whether you like him or not, he already loves you. Mm. And with these kids in, in Exile International's programs, I hope that we are doing a good job of showing that to them in our actions, but also in what we are telling them. Um, one thing that I would say that hasn't come out yet in this uh, conversation is that so many of the kids talk about what has been transformative. Like when they identify what that is, many of them talk about the love of God and that they learned they could be a new creation in Christ. And that that's not just words because they were once labeled as and known as murderer. Forced, whether or not they were forced to do it, whether or not they did these things um, against their own will. I mean, they're 12-year-olds that someone put an AK-47 in their arms and said, you have to do this or I kill you and your entire family. Um, so they were forced to do these things and now their identity has become murder. But then they realize that there is a God who loves them unconditionally. Not only that, but he doesn't see them for their past and they can be completely new creations in Christ. That's what they'll tell you has transformed their life. Core Stories is a ministry of the Otter Creek Church in Brentwood, Tennessee. To find more stories, go to ottercreek.org slash stories and follow us on Instagram at Otter Creek Church.